Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Late Lunch Playback this final week in April. For those living with domestic violence, these times are more difficult than ever. Solicitor Deirdre Morn from Talent spoke to me about new legislation on the books since 2019. As you rightly pointed out at the start of this, uh, there is great concern for the safety of uh, women and children in this lockdown caused by COVID-19. And particularly Women's Aid have pointed this out. And because of that, it's very pertinent that we should talk about this now because there have been uh, changes uh, in the law because of the Domestic Violence Act 2018, which came into effect on the 1st of January 2019. Now, as you know, Jerry, the, the family law is my area of expertise, but we also have Brenda Rush in our Ashburn office, who is also an expert in this area for your MEES listeners. OK, and when, when you talk about these changes, there is a list of factors that I've published now that a court must take into consideration when making a, a, an order. Well, what I would say to you, Jerry, is because there's 15 of them, Mm. And uh, it's 15, but the court can take more than the 15 into account. I think perhaps the thing to do would be to direct your listeners to the Women's Aid uh, website because they are enumerated there and they can take their time and read through them. And just if they do that, it'll become very clear to them that the grounds on which a person can obtain an order now under domestic violence has been expanded. Now, to explain this, prior to the 18 Act, the only grounds on which you could get an order for domestic violence is if there was actual violence or the threat of violence. Now, this has been widened to include what is called coercive control. Mm. Now, I'll explain that to you. The term coercive control was coined by a sociologist called Evan Stark in 2012. Now, he defined it as follows, as a pattern of domination where physical assault, if it has occurred at all, was accompanied by tactics to isolate, degrade, exploit, control and frighten a person. Coercive control also recognizes how abusers interweave repeated physical and sexual violence or the threat of it with intimidation, sexual degradation, isolation and control. So really that says that, uh, and it's a very important point, it doesn't have to be of a physical nature. It, it can be torment in other ways, as you've outlined there, there. Now, there's a very famous case involving a lady called Sally Challen 
in the UK as recently as last year. Could you just summarise that case for listeners? Because it really does, uh, uh, you know, get, get to the point of this. I'm glad you brought that up, Jerry, and I will summarise it. I, I'll have to tell you the background of it for yep. your um, listeners to understand. Sally Challen killed her husband in 2011. He was 61 years of age. She'd met him when she was 15. He was 22. She'd come from a very sheltered background where her father had died when she was very young and her mother didn't believe in higher education for women. In their courtship, she looked after him, she cooked for him, she cleaned for him. He continued to see other women. She became pregnant at 17 before they married. She had a late-term abortion. His attitude was, well, how do I know it's mine? She confronted him about the other women and he threw her down the stairs and out the door. At this point, she knew there was no point in ever confronting him. Despite this, she married him. She was a dutiful wife. She stayed at home, brought up two boys. At age 13 uh, of one of her sons, she returned to work, working for the police federation. Her husband decided that all of her money would pay for the household bills, none of his. He then indulged himself with luxury items like Cartier watches and a Ferrari and going to Grand Prix events. He spent his time criticizing her in public, calling her names like fat arse and thunder thighs. He'd say to people who complimented her, well, you haven't seen her without clothes on. He had a strange background himself in that he had run-ins with the law, speeding fines and fraud. His neighbours were wary of him because he'd send Christmas cards with him on the bonnet of a car and a semi-topless woman on top of him. His children found the atmosphere in the house very difficult. He criticised his wife's cooking. He wouldn't let them watch the TV if he wasn't there. He'd lock away their phones. He told his wife to wash before they had sexual intercourse that he didn't like to see her naked. Uh, despite all of this, he'd still see other women. He went to massage parlours where there was trafficked sex workers. If confronted, he'd tell his wife she was mad. Uh, that she was drinking. She often had to go to her GP because of the stress that she felt from the relationship. He isolated her from friends and family. On one occasion, when his friend came to stay with them, with his wife, he hugged Sally. Richard became so enraged that when the friends left, he raped her. He destroyed her self-esteem. She didn't believe she could live without him. She told friends if she left, he would make her life hell. Eventually, she did leave, but it was very brief. He had controlled her to such an extent that she could not live without him. And because of that, she begged him to take her back. He told her he'd consider it under strict controlling conditions. He continued to see other women and she snapped and she killed him. Now, she was convicted of murder in 2011, but she was given leave to appeal in 2018 on the grounds that she had suffered coercive controlling behaviour from her husband. Now, at the time of her original trial, coercive control was not a criminal offence in the UK. It didn't exist. It only came in under the 2015 Serious Crime Act. And her conviction was overturned in 2019 as the appeal court was told she'd had two mental disorders at the time of the killing that had been made worse by the coercive control of her husband. So that really explains 
the whole way co- coercive control works. But yes. to, on a very trivial uh, basis, you may have listeners that are fans of Cor- Carnation Street, as I am myself, and they are running a storyline that is very much based on the facts in the Sally Challen case. They have a character, Yasmin, who's being coercively controlled by her husband, Jeff. And the writers have very cleverly built the storyline up over a long extended period of time to show how insidious this behavior can be and that the person experiencing it doesn't even know that it's happening or can't accept that it's happening while other family members might be aware of it. Mm. It can take a very long time before a person themselves comes to the self-realization. And there has been a conviction in Ireland. A guy called Kevin Dunleavy at Letterkenny Court was convicted and jailed for 21 months. Yes, that's right. Our legislation, the Domestic Violence Legislation 2018 under Section 29, has now created that offence of coercive control. Mm. And yes, indeed, that was the first case under the Act. Just to outline some of the facts in that case that came out at the hearing, In a three-month period, he made 5,757 calls to his partner. He was so obsessed with her, he made her take her phone with her everywhere. He called her on FaceTime and he made her scan what was around her so that he knew exactly where she was. He burnt her clothes, broke her straighteners so she couldn't go out. And on one occasion, at the Travellers Inn in Milford, he pulled her out by her collar and beat her, including punching her in the head. I, even when you were telling me about the challenge case on this one, I just sit here and I'm stuck to the chair, Deirdre, when I hear what people have gone through and had to put up with. It's horrendous. And if you're listening today and you're affected by any of this, what do you say to somebody who's listening today and believes they're in that situation? Because we're going to have to finish short. I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to bring you back next week just to continue on this conversation. What do you say to people? There are people listening today and they may not be able to make a phone call. They may not be able to to move on this. What should they do? If they can contact a solicitor, they should immediately. The one thing that I will say is that the courts are sitting for domestic violence cases. So there is still the facility to obtain an order. So they should contact their solicitor immediately if they recognize any of the factors that have been described in any of those cases. Thanks, Deirdre. And we'll be returning to this important topic on late lunch next week. Dion O'Rourke Ryan told me the story of her pregnancy, catching COVID-19 and giving birth to a lovely little boy. Right on. It was actually Eddie that picked it. We went through so many names for him. We weren't 100% sure what we wanted at all. And because I'm from Denor and because the beautiful story of the Salmon of Knowledge and stuff, um, Eddie decided that he wanted to pick Braydon. So Braydon is about the Salmon of Knowledge. So for ourselves, it just has a little bit of an extra meaning because I with Braydon himself, it's, it's a strong warrior that we, we've been lucky to have and he has fought through so much with myself and he's made it out the, the other end and he's here now as a little precious gift for for us. So we want to love it. that would, would mean something strong and powerful and nothing better than a bit of 
history um, behind the <laughs> yeah, name. Absolutely, so. absolutely. It's funny the pronunciations. You say Braithon, Brathon was what we would have learned. It's just the di- the dialect or whatever, it, wherever you're from and in school. <laughs> now, now you mentioned there that he he, he is a very special little boy. He's special yeah. for a number of reasons. Your pregnancy wasn't straightforward from the off. Far from it. <laughs> um, from week six, I um, was diagnosed with hyper which is um, a condition that it's like morning sickness, but it's all day sickness. Um, it's kind of um, a sickness that basically is 24 hours a day. Um, you are practically bed bound from the sickness itself. Um, I've, I ended up having to go into hospital at least once a week to be given IV fluids um, to keep myself hydrated because I had extreme high levels of ketones um, in my body, which is like an antibody for yourself it's kind of like it works against you so it's nearly like as if the pregnancy is it's like a little bacteria Um, it's the only way to really describe it and the way that they describe it in the hospital is that the, your body is fighting against the, the pregnancy because the pregnancy is taking everything from you so it's taking all of your vitamins it's taking every bit of nutrition that you have so in turn of that I ended up getting hyper which is obviously the, the severe sickness side of it so I had that from week 6 and then I was diagnosed with preeclampsia then at week 34. Um, oh, no. And then after that, I contracted COVID-19 at week 36. So it's well, been a journey and a half. <laughs> so it has. It certainly is. Uh, you know, the, the roof of the house fell in on your pregnancy, I think <laughs> it's fair to say. The, the COVID, you, you were tested first for the COVID and it, it came back with a negative. So I was tested on the 8th in Navin. Um, for COVID and that test result came back on the 15th as positive but I was tested again by the Rotunda Hospital because I was so sick um, and I needed to go into hospital obviously they, they ran their own test then because they were concerned on how long it was going to take for the nav and one to come back and unfortunately that one came back as negative so mm. when I went into hospital then on this I was rushed in on the Saturday morning um, with extreme I couldn't breathe. I was I was struggling to catch breath, um, and I had severe headaches. So I was brought into hospital on a Saturday morning, and it was confirmed then that they weren't one hundred percent sure whether their test was correct because I still had severe symptoms of COVID, um, and because obviously I, I was requiring oxygen and stuff because I was struggling to breathe. So when the results came back from Navin on the fifteenth to confirm that I was positive, it was a bit of a shock, I think, for everybody. Um, but the hospital. And I do have to say they were outstanding. From the minute I walked in the hospital doors, they treated me like I had COVID. So they were fully gowned. They had their masks. They had everything on that they needed to have on to protect themselves, their goggles to hold off, um, and treated me as full COVID from the minute I walked in um, the door on Saturday morning. So they had already isolated me into a separate room away from other patients and away from everybody else. Because obviously we just were waiting for that one to come back from Navin, um, because mm. they weren't 100% sure. Because I still had the signs, even though their their test had came back negative, they didn't want to take any chances. But unfortunately, then on the, the Tuesday I was diagnosed with with the COVID. Then it came back that their test from Navin was positive. So and did the, did that did that force the hand really? Because little Braydon was uh, delivered by C-section. He was. Um, unfortunately, during the week, I was getting worse. Um, my breathing was, was struggling. I was really struggling at, at night time more so um, than during the day. So 
when breed, when they were testing Breed on, um, when they had him in on the machines and stuff, checking his, you know, his mobility, his heart rate, and um, his heart rate was raising. So on the Wednesday then before Braden was born, um, his his heart rate kept raising and going down and raising and going down. So they were quite concerned um, about trying to get him out. But because obviously with the COVID, they're trying to do natural births. They they really are trying to go against having C-sections um, because a natural birth is more healthier for the mom and for the baby, especially for recovery rate with the COVID. So they tried to start me naturally on the Wednesday. Um, that didn't work. They tried again on the Thursday. That didn't work. They tried again on the Friday and that didn't work. So after the third attempt of everything that they could do to try and start me naturally um, and none of it was working and then Braydon's um, heart rate started raising again. So at that then they, they had no other choice but to, to do a C-section because it was the only other safer option to, to get him here. Um, mm. So I was the first kind of C-section I think in the rotunda <laughs> that had the COVID um, to, to be done on the Saturday morning then. You made history and you'll be able to tell him this in the future as he grows up. You're a very special little boy. Listen to this story. Your mammy, look at what happened to her. She came through it and all's well that ends well. Look, at we just wanted to have a little chat with you today. You're uh, on the right road now. He's fine and we're happy days. That's it. He tested negative. So we both got home on Thursday. So it's it's absolutely brilliant. We're, We're both chuffed and it's great to have him home and have him here so that's all that really matters is that that he's here and it is just to any other pregnant woman that's out there it's so scary to think about the covid but you know you can get through the medical support that's there is absolutely outstanding they're still constantly doing so much research on pregnant women but there is no evidence to state that a baby can contract coronavirus while in the mammy's tummy and um, there's yeah. nothing to, to say that it happens and um, so it's just if there is anybody out there that's pregnant that's worried please don't you know, the medical teams that are in the hospitals at the moment, whether it be the Lords or whether it be the Rotunda or any other maternity hospital, they're outstanding. Yeah. And they'll make sure you get the best possible care. There's no doubt all's well that ends well. Author Nicola Pierce joined us on the publication of her wonderful new book that was inspired by a local man. That's right. He uh, contacted me out of the blue a couple of years ago and asked me to come up and meet with him. So it turned out he wanted me, hoped I would write something about a Captain McClintock who was born and bred in Dundalk and actually was one that went on to become one of Ireland's most foremost polar explorers in the 1800s. So they have a few things belonging to him and Brian kind of thought I might be able to write something about him. So I went home and did my research and uh, I wasn't hugely interested in the idea at the time. But halfway through the intro, or after just a little bit of reading, I discovered that McClintock was involved with something called the Lost, the doomed expedition of John Franklin. And, uh, oh gosh, I fell in love with that story. As soon as I started reading it, I completely fell in love with this story of two ships leaving England in 1845. Over 130 men the ships were strengthened. They used engines from trains, their steam locomotives. They had food for three years. And all they were doing was going to locate the last 300 miles of the fabled Northwest Passage. And not a single man was ever seen again. So I fell in love with this story. And I decided that this would be my fifth novel. And alongside the story of the lost ships, once they uh, didn't return after two years, the Navy 
started sending out ships in search of them but didn't know where to look. So meanwhile, in 1849, so this is four years after those ships left England, in 1849, a four-year-old dies of fever in Derry and her name was Wheezy Cotham. And her nine-year-old sister and seven-year-old brother, once she's dead and buried, they see her spears around the house. And there is an aunt that lives in the house with them. And you can imagine the adults would have been very confused and bewildered and not sure whether to believe it or not. But at one point, the aunt asks nine-year-old Anne to ask Wheezy, does she know where the two ships are? Because the newspapers would have been full of this, trying to find the two ships. So this story has been documented by a reverend um, at the time. And as a result of being asked to ask Wheezy where the ships might be, and supposedly drew a map um, which included territory that had yet to be uh, uh, discovered. And now that writers and historians looking back would say that that map was probably the closest that they had because the two ships were found. Now, only found in 2014 and 2016, but in, in places that Anne had on her map. So it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story. And the way you've woven it together, as a writer, I want to ask you this. Do you, do you look at reviews of your books? Yes. well then you're going to be no wonder you're laughing and smiling and so happy because I know this as well the reviews are outstanding I have to say I I just feel so blessed Um, you see I think you know this is the book that stopped when I was diagnosed with cancer Mm. any other book and I love all my books but any other books I would have been running for a deadline and this book got stopped for a year and I couldn't physically write it for a year so I thought about it every day and I really think that has lent the book something um, and just I think even just the story itself the actual history anyway it, it's just to me this is like a it's got a lot of similarities to the Titanic story a huge big story that uh, involves a lot of people and to say those words you said a moment ago, you were diagnosed with cancer. I spoke to you, remember being in with me and we had this yeah. big interview about you and your That's illness right. and you had paused it at that stage. Was it difficult to pick it up or in a way, was it something you were aiming for while you were going through the cancer yeah, journey? It was, um, you know, because having been on chemo, that was probably the biggest point of the whole experience. It's very like what we're all going through now. Your life basically is put on hold and you're not meant to be going out and mixing with people. Um, and you've a lot of time for reflection, a lot of time for thought. So it actually is a lot in common. I mean, I kind of recognize this, this kind of staying home. I recognize this from from being on chemo. So uh, I did an awful lot of thinking about the book. It got me through because I couldn't sleep for nights too. You know, it takes a while for the body to get used to chemo. So I would have been regularly wake, waking up at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and if I was scared or nervous, I would think about the book, think about my characters. Um, so I just think everything happens for a reason. And the book is the better of it for the fact that I went through uh, I mean, cancer. Now, I will say I did think that cancer would be the biggest battle that this book would face. Never imagining that when it came out, the bookshops would be closing their doors a few days later because of a global pandemic. But it's just part, seems to be just part of the journey that this book is on. It certainly is. And listen, you don't let anything get in your way, woman, uh, in this lifetime. And this ain't going to stop you either, Nicola Pierce. You know, I saw a lovely interview you did recently in the Irish Times. And one thing jumped out from it to me. When you were asked who influenced you the most, you mentioned a few people. But in particular, you mentioned the Gary Kelly Cancer Support Centre. 
Is it that significant now in your life as regards the greatest influence, one of them? Yes. I mean, I had, you know, I mean, I hit 50 last year and I would have thought I had enough friends in my life. I mean, I'm, I could be quite antisocial. I'm a writer. I need to be possessive of my time. But going down to the Gary Kelly Centre, you know, I'm never going to forget going through cancer, which makes it really important the people that I've met in the Gary Kelly Centre. Um, there's a real bond there between us all. Uh, we understand what the other has gone through. We've seen each other bald. We've seen our hair grow back. We've seen each other on bad days. Uh, or we end up doing therapy courses together. Um, so I now have this huge, uh, a huge group of women that I feel very close to uh, who would have championed this book and knew the book was coming out. And they were all going to come along to the Arts Centre for the big launch that was meant to be happening on the 19th of uh, March and uh, there was a lot of people coming from the Gary Kelly Centre but hopefully we're going to have that day in October uh, this was I had organised four launches for the book Jason Ghosts and of course they all got cancelled uh, but hopefully all of them will happen again but Jeff and the Arts Centre Clef Farrell and I are looking at dates to hold the day again in October oh, with over fantastic. 120 people coming we have four schools and a whole mm. crowd coming from Gary Kelly but you're you know, other people have had to move their weddings and all the rest, so it's grand. <laughs> it will happen, Nicola. It will happen whenever that may be. And just while we're on it, I want to say a big thank you to Anne and the crew at the Gary Kelly Centre because they left in a lovely little gift pack for everybody in LMFM last week. But she'll have Eamon Doyle to answer to because he's putting on the pounds, you know, because of all this. <laughs> and he's up there with very few people and he's getting more than his fair share at the minute. But that's for another day. Anyway, just to come back to you and, and the current situation, Situation. You work from home, you work at your kitchen table. The new husband, well, the relatively new husband, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. He's homebound himself at the moment. How is that cocooning getting on? Actually, I'm quite surprised. I like having him home. Now, I did give him my writing room and I was downstairs at the kitchen. So that lasted one week. I'm back up in my own room <laughs> and he's now into the front room. Uh, but actually, no, I like I like having them there, um, especially in the early weeks when it was all quite scary and, the, you know, the news and nobody knew what was going on. I liked having them here in the daytime. So I actually think I will struggle when he goes back uh, to work um, and leaves here and goes back to the office. But I'm surprised because normally I could be pretty fierce now with space. But uh, no, I am enjoying having them here. Now, I was making them lunch for the first couple of weeks, but well, an end to that. <laughs> <laughs> Nicola, come on, don't don't get soft at this stage. You started and, and, and mean to go on, you know, start as you mean to go on and keep that going. But look, before we finish, I want to say again, you're a remarkable lady. I have the, such admiration for you and you're on a surefire winner with this book again, Chasing Ghosts, an Arctic Adventure. Just one last thing. In the yeah. current situation, as you said, your journey, <laughs> you've experienced, you know, having to spend a lot of time in your own, having to stay yeah. at home, having to cocoon long before this ever came. Somebody who lives with this and has been through it, are you more resilient at this time, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I have to say, a part of me enjoys this. There's something very relaxing about it. Uh, I can I can be here in the house. and I do love being at home. I don't have to go anywhere I don't want to go. I don't have to deal with uh, anyone I don't want to ha I don't have to deal with. And this was like chemo. I could see the good in it. And I, part of me enjoyed the peace that chemo brought. All I did was read, watch a bit of TV. So um, 
I am enjoying, there's a part of me enjoying the situation now. I mean, if I could take away the worrying about family getting sick. And then also I should mention my lovely in-laws. I really miss them. Pat and Nora, they're listening to this show now. They listen to every day. They celebrated 65 years married and should have had a party two weeks ago along with Nora was 88 and wanted to throw herself a party. Now, hopefully it'll happen in August. That kind of stuff. If you take that stuff away, um, I'm actually... Quite, you know, I mean, I got used to it. I find it's a calming kind of uh, situation. I do stress now when I have to go out to the supermarkets and I only really go out to do the shopping. Um, And I try to kind of minimise even walks. I suppose I miss the freedom. Of everything, I miss the freedom. I miss not um, being stressed when I'm out on the street and seeing somebody come towards me. Um, But apart from that, this feels like it's been going on for quite some time. And a part of me has settled into this rhythm. And people should just listen to Nicola Pierce, to those words that she's just uttered a moment ago there. We should all take that on board and go with it for the foreseeable future. You're a winner, Nicola Pierce, and this book is brilliant. Where can people get it? I know the shops aren't open, but it's available online, isn't it? It's available online. I know Antonia's bookshop in Trim, uh, they're doing orders online. There's actually quite most bookshops now. You could either ring them uh, or email them and they are processing orders. So most of them have uh, reopened in that, just online or else by phone. Um, and I'd love people to go and buy it. That would be brilliant. <laughs> go and buy this book. It's called Chasing Ghosts, an Arctic Adventure by Nicola Pierce, the O'Brien Press. It's available. Go online and order it for about nine years of age up. Best wishes to Nicola. What a wonderful lady. An old friend of late lunch, Father Michael Cusack returned to the airwaves as he began by thanking God for the great weather. It has really, yeah. it's been a, a huge boost to many, many people. But I'll, I have to say, as a gardener, the poor old soil is needing a wee drop. I think it's <laughs> going to come in the next few days because things are bone dry. But it surely have to. I mean, if people were closed in in their homes and the rain coming down and them confined, it would have led, I'm sure, to, to all sorts of, of uh, difficulties for people. So even though they're restricted in their movement of getting out and how far they can go, at least they're not living on top of each other, you know. I loved your message. That's why we're talking today. You sat there, the birds in the background, in your garden, and you spoke about nature and the message that that has, you know, given us at this time when we look around us and see what it's all about. Yes, I, I think, you know, we've had lots of time to to reflect now in the time of shutdown. And um, particularly, I think those who live in rural Ireland have such a huge advantage um, in terms of wildlife and in terms of being able to appreciate nature. And we're in, we're in the time of, of maximum bloom and growth. All that is, is dead is coming back to life. And you can see wonderful signs in, in nature all around. Even in towns, I believe, the, the, the air quality and, and the sounds that people are, are able to hear are much uh, greater than they would have been if we were in, in our normal time. But, um, yeah, the reflection was on really being able to appreciate all that we have, that if you just look at nature, how well they're cared for, that the Lord has provided for them all. And sometimes, I suppose, in life we get distracted and we feel that we have to be chasing after all sorts of things, commercial, rather than just being accepting of the gifts of nature itself. Maybe this is a time, you know, where where there's a grace being given to the world, as well as the, the hardship of the coronavirus, which is absolutely undoubtable. I mean, there's a time of rest, that seems to be be given to the world, to the environment. And I think there's there's time for people to reflect and, and ask themselves, why were we so 
consumed in in in, uh, in wanting to be going, going, going all the time. People have suddenly had to slow down. They've had to face what's around them, and very often what's around us is wonderful. You know, I mean, there's all the hardships of people being unemployed and people who are struggling to make ends meet. That's undeniable, but um, very often we live in a world where we don't open our eyes and our ears and, and see the great gifts of nature, and rather than that, we're, we're trodden it down, um, maybe, maybe unaware in, in many, many ways. Never-ending consuming, you know, growth in economies, expansion. Oh, my, it has been just relentless, even from the last crash. And you picked out something I thought was really amusing. You talked about the big award ceremonies like the Oscars and the red carpet. And when the interviewer goes up with the microphone to mainly the ladies, but the gents as well, Michael, you know, and says, what are you wearing? Now, who, are you wearing? Or, who are you wearing? Oh, who, are you, who are you wearing? I beg your pardon, Gucci or Prada? You, you're really getting at something there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the big questions always. Who who are you wearing? And really, I mean, what do we need to wear? How many of us really need it? I mean, this isn't a, an attack on commerce, but I suppose it's more a critique on ourselves and our own habits. Not one of us really needs um, that extra item to wear. We have enough clothing. We have enough footwear we're blessed in so many ways i mean we, we fail at times maybe to recognize that that we have so many blessings already given to us and i suppose the biblical line is to say look at the birds in the air look at the, look at nature look at look at trees all of them are provided for and we're provided with so much we have enough food in our pantries very often many people are, are wasting food they've stuffed that they're letting go out of date now we're being much more aware and much more, I don't know, schooled in, in, in necessity. I remember when I was a novice, we had a, a novice master who, who was trying to make us um, know the difference between needs and wants. We can want loads and loads of things, but we need little enough. You know, I could want a new pair of shoes, but I mean, I only have two feet, so what's the point in having 12 pairs of shoes, you know, only for changing and swapping? But the needs of, of, of our own lives are more than commerce offers to us. The need to be able to sit at table. I hear some people saying this is the first time that they were able to sit at table with family because coronavirus has has pulled back their deadlines and their work lines and they're suddenly getting to know their children or getting to know their spouse or getting to know their partners. All of these things are, are things, I think, that are part of a pattern of life. And one of the other reflections I was thinking of is in this creation story when we hear of the six days of, of absolute creation and lots happening, and on the seventh day they rested. I don't think that's an accident, that the seventh day is a day of rest. And we have abused the day of rest so badly in the last 20 or 30 years. In, in the past, Sunday was the day, okay, it was a day of church, but put church aside, it was a day of family. It was a day of not working. It was a day of catching your breath. It was a day of getting out for a walk with family, having picnics, appreciating the wonderful gifts that we've been given. And I think maybe if there, if there are lessons to be learned from this time of coronavirus, it's, it's maybe to, to reclaim um, those values that past generations held dear to themselves. And maybe we shouldn't have thrown out or, or allowed uh, to lose um, because we're the ones that give permission, you know, for, for commerce and for all these. It's our needs that we're, we're chasing after. But that rest day is absolutely vital to the human being, to nature, to the body, to the earth. We do need time of rest.
wouldn't I love to see it go back? Because I have fond memories of those days growing up. And it was an absolute down day and nowhere was open. And people could take their time and enjoy that one day, be it one day of the seven, that they could take it easy. And of course it was, it had a, a huge religious aspect to it as well. Hey, if I tell you I'm sitting here in my pyjamas at ten past two in the afternoon, who are you wearing? I don't know what I'm wearing, to be honest. with you. weather I'm walking in the house. <laughs> I'm only joking, yeah. I'm only joking, I am. I was down in the bog this morning at half past six, would you believe it, doing a reflection, which I'm going to have to do again because I realised when I came back up and looked at it that I gave the wrong name to the bog I was in. So either I get attacked by the locals or I redo it this evening or tomorrow morning. But we have plenty more. These are thoughts for the day that, you know, all the church and, and so many other institutions, their only way of working now is through social media. So we've all become very good at trying to put stuff up into our websites and Redemptorist Communications do this thought for the day as well as, you know, so many churches that are broadcasting their masses and prayer times. We've never prayed more than we're praying now because you're trying to fill that space and offer to people um, the wonderful resource of being able to continue to worship within their homes. I, I wouldn't have known what Zoom was until my aunt died next door here, Lord of Mercy, about a month ago. And uh, I had to do her funeral mass. She has a, a stepdaughter in Canada and two in England. And somebody said, why don't you Zoom us? And I thought, God, I would have thought Zoom was something to do with spinning or Zumba or something like that. <laughs> but uh, now I've found that it's a way of bringing the world together, you know. And uh, we had our month's mind mass there on Sunday evening. And we had, I think, almost 30 people from different parts of the world all coming together. I mean, clearly, they couldn't receive communion. There's no sign of peace been offered but we were connected and that's the wonderful thing i mean you you'll know it with the power of radio jerry and um, the the great ability to get into people's homes and into people's hearts and they're appreciating appreciating it so much more than ever before and um, the gifts of, of telecommunications and the gifts of of those of you who have been able to continue even in your pajamas shame on you <laughs> I'll send you a WhatsApp. I'm only cutting you. But we will be talking about dressing and uh, hygiene on late lunch, let me tell you, on Thursday. Uh, the other thing I'll say to you, you're all right in the bog as long as you don't come across the midges. You know that yourself. They oh. will certainly make you take flight. But look, at before times be, time beats us, I want to ask you this. Um, you have so many people listening today who know and loved you. And... They want to know how you're getting on since you stepped out of mainstream uh, redemptorists in Dundalk. Well, I'm getting on great, thanks be to God. Yeah, I'm still living down here at home. I live on my own. Um, I'm not in, in parish ministry. Um, some people think I'm running the parish here, but I'm not. We don't have a priest here. Our church is closed. The priest is in the next village in Glenamady, and he hasn't asked me at all to help. So I'm fine with just being as I am. Um, I'm very well connected still with so many people in the Northeast. And um, it's amazing that ministry continues, you know, because I'm aware of so many people who are sick and in need of prayers. And I remember them and pray for them. And um, I'm connected very much uh, with those because I, my heart is still very much, let me tell you, back in, in Dundalk and in the Northeast. And it always will be. And even over the last number of days, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that coronavirus is, is, is the main um, banner that we're, we're hearing and 
and listening to on on TV. But people's lives have continued with their with their their worries and their their strains and their stresses and medical problems and all sorts of things they're dealing with, including you know terminal illness and and trying to come to terms with the loss of loved ones and all those things are there. And I I remain hugely connected um, through that. So. Um, what I don't know what the future holds, really. I mean, I'd like. I think I can minister just as well where I am. Now that's not a very good answer, sure it's not. I'd love your job where I could sit around in my pajamas all day, all right. But I'm out digging a garden, Jerry, and I'd love the radio side of it because I think it's the most powerful means of communication. And now that. Now that even church is seeing that, you know, okay, you have the televangelists in America and all that side of things. I don't want to be uh, working in, in that area, but definitely allowing people to to have time for reflection and appreciation is wonderful. Mm-hmm. So if I could see something that uh, um, nudged me along in that direction, I'd be very glad to go go with it. But in the meantime, I'm healthy, I'm happy, I have shelter, I have a lovely garden, and the birds sing to me every day. So. Um, it's it's a wonderful time, and I miss everybody over there. Ah, listen, we miss you too, and it's great to hear from you. Art Agnew, your old neighbour from Ard Ross Avenue in Carrick McCross, wishing you well. Vivian Ross and her friends listening today, missing you as well, and send you all the good wishes. And they're flying into us at the moment. Father Michael, we'll talk again soon. Jerry, it's lovely to touch base Vivian with you. Vivian, that you mentioned there now, there now, had her 40th birthday last weekend, so wish her a happy birthday. <laughs> and Tiernan Riley has his 21st next weekend. And to all of my friends there, to yourself, Jerry, and all the listeners in LMFM, thanks a million for, for um, having me on today and thanks for the support over the years. Words of wisdom and inspiration indeed from Michael. Neve Fitzsimons, by bringing her art classes online, has revealed real concerns about COVID in the minds of youngsters. Well, first and foremost, I'm, um, I'm a local designer. And, um, but I love children and I love working with them. So last August, I started teaching them. So I run camps after schools and so be it. But as soon as the crisis happens, obviously I cancelled the after schools and the Easter camp straight away. Mm. So then I started to get um, emails from some of the parents and they were like saying, oh, you know, their kids are really missing the class and, you know, it's going to be really difficult for them. And they're bored at home and it's difficult. So I was like, OK, um, let me see how I can get this online. So I had heard of Zoom. And um, as nerve-wracking as it was, <laughs> I just decided to just jump in and do it. And, you know, we all kind of learned together because it was new for me. It was new for the children. And um, after one or two classes, the children took to it brilliantly. How many are you teaching in a week, roughly? So roughly there's about 74 children in a week. Um, there's 25 in a class, so I run different hourly slots. Yeah, brilliant. That's brilliant. And you know, when you say you jump in, I'm in the same boat myself. I had to jump in here at home and learn. And it's amazing what you learn when you're forced into the situation, Neve. It really is. Because if we don't have to do it, we're not going to do it. Because I don't think anybody likes to be pushed aside the comfort zone. But once you do it, you grow as a person as well. And it's actually very rewarding. But it's very, very rewarding, most of all, to work with these children in these circumstances because it really is helping them in their lives. It's helping them a lot. Oh, hugely and well done to you. And uh, sure, um, when you think of what, what you do is so creative and you're being even more creative now. But here's the nub of this uh, discussion with, with you and me today. You are true art 
realising and being told by your students that there are real concerns with young people out there about the current situation? That's right, because when I started running the, children, the classes with the children, it's, it was a form of escapism. So I never mentioned the virus, I never mentioned lockdown, because I don't want them to be thinking of it while they're doing their art. But the way I teach the art, it's a little bit the way I do my surface pattern design in my own company. So it, there's a lot of storytelling, there's fun characters. Um, so I encourage the kids to put their little spin on it. So I give my version of the story. And I tell them they can use their own stylizings to complete the character or maybe bring in their own story. But what I wasn't expected was to see a couple of the artworks with, you know, things about the virus and the lockdown in them. That's actually shocked me. So children are expressing their fears and concerns to you through the art? Yes, absolutely. Now, not all of them, just a mm. handful. But um, it's just really interesting. And actually, I think it's quite a beautiful thing. Because I'm sure children find it hard to express their emotions because they don't know what's going on. They don't know how to express their feelings, maybe. Um, so to, if they can put their little feelings into their characters on paper, I just think it's great for their minds and their soul. Tell us about the child who drew the images of the monkeys. That's right. So there was one child, um, one uh, little girl, um, she drew. So my lesson for the day was a monkey design <laughs> in a kind of with a kind of tropical background mm. so she didn't do one monkey she did three monkeys um she had she do four monkeys i can't remember but anyway she had a couple of monkeys on the branch and then she had one monkey hanging down under the branch but i looked at the corner of the branch on the right hand side and it said there was a kind of strange little kind of ball thing and i was like what is that and she had written beside it the coronavirus is coming. And I looked at the colour of the blue monkey at the bottom of the branch hanging on, and he was blue. But I didn't think he particularly looked like he was well or as happy as the other monkeys. Yeah. So it was a graphic illustration of what that child was going through that child's mind, and she captured it in the image. The other one was the little girl with the robot. What, what did that reveal? Oh, yes. So the lesson for the day was a, a robot sitting in a cloud in the sky. Um, so, and I told the children my story was because I had these crazy like platform boots on the robot. <clears throat> and I told the children my story is that these boots are magic. And maybe that's how the robot got up to sit in the cloud in the sky. But what's your story? So they all drew the illustrations. And this little girl in particular, she had a cloud that was crying beside the robot. And it was her mum actually that messaged me the next day. Oh, she had written beside the robot as well, in lockdown. I'm in lockdown. So the mum messaged me the next day because I wasn't sure if I should say something to the parents or not. But the mum just said, you know, thank you so much for helping her realise her emotions. I had a talk with um, uh, Chloe and I said to her, why was the robot sad? And she said, mum, the, the cloud is sad for the robot because the robot is in lockdown. But... If you look at my magic boots, they're going to take me up out of lockdown to see my friends. Hmm. I love it. I love it. But doesn't it show you the benefit of allowing children express what they're feeling through art? And it can tell a story that perhaps we as adults and you have and the parents have honed in on to help us talk to them and talk through this situation. 
Absolutely, because it was a great opportunity for that little girl's mum to talk to her about it and for the little girl to say, you know, how she was feeling, even to mention, you know, the robots in in lockdown, meaning she's in lockdown. Mm. So I just think it's so good for them. Absolutely. Creativity is alive and well and it's manifesting itself out there in so many ways. I'm, parents are listening today saying, how can I get my child into Neve Fitzsimons classes through Zoom? Is, is it closed or have, are you open for any others to join you? No, like I still have places in the classes, um, like because I run different hourly slots. So absolutely, um, there is currently a website um, being built. But for the moment, I have a Facebook page. So it's Arts for Kids, but it's Arts with a Z, <laughs> not an S. And then um, the, they can contact me through that. And there's also the email address, artsforkids at gmail.com. So there's absolutely places and um, I'm just happy to work with these children in this time. Well done, Neve. A revealing scenario indeed. Finally this week, environmental champion Sean McDonough believes there's a link between mankind's destruction of the planet and where we find ourselves today. Like in the last 20 years, we have had an extraordinary number of uh, pathogens or viruses that have moved from the human spe- from other species to the human species. SARS, MERS, Ebola, HIV, Zika, H1N1. Uh, so... That's, that's, and why that is happening is because we're moving so much into the natural world. And, and they gave an idea of what they think happened in Wuhan, in China, that you have the wet markets there where people are selling fresh meat. And also you have shivers, you have wild pups, you have pangolins, all of them crammed together uh, in difficult situations. And that's exactly where, where, why this virus moved from uh, another creature, probably about this uh, uh, to humankind. So unless we begin to take seriously the, the bi- what we call the biodiversity dimension of this, which uh, we're going to have these much, much more often than we have had in the past. Now, we've had them always. I mean, you take, a, you take Drogheda, for example, in 1347, uh, after the Black Death arrived there, something like 25 Franciscans died there in a period of about six weeks. So uh, so this has happened, but what's happening now is that it will happen more often. We're lucky. One situation with COVID, uh, it, it's easy to pick it up, but it doesn't kill that many people. Whereas the Black Death killed almost 60% of the people uh, who got it. I mean, it brought down the population of Europe by at least a third, if not a half. So, so, so and we also know, they didn't know what caused it. I mean, 100 years ago, we didn't even know viruses existed. So at least we have uh, an out. Uh, we know, for example, that, that we, we, we have, we've uh, looked after these things in the past and that uh, we could be able to do it in the future if we get a vaccine within, within a year or two. So you say, and you've been writing about this and speaking about it and urging us for years and years to sit up and take notice to what's happening in this little planet and what we're doing to it as mankind. You see a direct link here. You mentioned the wet markets. Now, the Chinese have temporarily uh, banned those, but it's not just China. You include in this brilliant piece uh, the Americans, where lots they import a lot of creatures from around the world into America. Oh, yeah, and I also look at modern farming. How, yeah. how do we how do we wear chickens, turkeys, pigs, and how do, how do, do we misuse antibiotics in their feed? So, I mean, these are the contexts that give have given rise in the past and will give rise 
to more and more of this happening in the future unless we begin to take positive action at the moment. And I'm saying that's one of them. And linked to that, of course, is very much is looking at climate change because that's one of the major producers of, of, of biodiversity destruction. We're living, you see, people forget that we're living in the sixth largest extinction of life since life began 3.8 billion years ago. The last time something like this happened was 65 million years ago when an asteroid crashed into the Earth and, and destroyed the, the, the dinosaurs. Now, people say, oh, that's, isn't that terrible? But that is, so in other words, we're getting rid of more and more and more of the wonderful reality of biodiversity in the planet. And we're almost going back to agriculture of monocrop. Instead of having 20, 30, 40, 100 crops, we have one crop. And of course, mm. if, there, if that crop goes wrong, we starve. So, like, it, it, this is the, we're sure we have to be fo- very focused. I mean, any of us who know people who have died, you know how horrible it has been in the last few weeks that you couldn't be with your loved ones when they were dying, uh, that they were looked after where it was in, in, in hospitals or in nursing homes, uh, that you couldn't see them, uh, and immediately afterwards you couldn't hug the body. Uh, in many situations, there were, were not even a funeral, and they're brought to, to the cemetery with only 10 people there. You think, look at that in the context of Irish culture. Fair. One of the things we'd have to say about ourselves is we actually do death well. We respond to it in a way that is supportive of people and particular in their grieving. So there will be an enormous amount of grieving in the future for the over now 1,000 people who have lost their lives and their friends and their family and, and everyone else. And they didn't have that context of understanding and community support for grieving. So that's very, very serious at, 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 one, at, at, at the individual level. Yes, and it's a tangible it's a tangible level as well for everybody impacted by it. Just come back to the uh, intense farming. And of course, in Ireland, we do know that we intensely rare, especially pigs and chickens and turkeys and other animals, thousands and thousands of them in confined spaces. Because you see, you know, Father Sean, we want to go to the supermarket and buy a chicken for three euro. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the question we're going to have to ask ourselves. That's yes. exactly what, what COVID-19 is saying to us. Is this the way we want to live in the future? And, and what you said there, these animals have to be treated uh, through their food stuff with yeah. antibiotics. And of course, that is making its way into us as human beings. And, and, and by the way, we're also making sure that antibiotics may not work in the future by doing that. I mean, antibiotics mm. is only with us treated to, to, since World War II, since penicillin. Mm. So we got an extraordinary benefit from people then, and we've misused it horrendously, and may not and work we, in the future. And and we hear, as we speak, uh, the outbreak of, of the uh, flu, avian uh, flu, the yes. avian flu in the in around the Monaghan area at the moment. And there's been thousands and thousands of hens being uh, culled there at the moment. So it, it, it does uh, it does uh, give way to to what you've been writing about in, in this brilliant paper. Uh, the other thing to come back to is you're really concerned. You know, washing of the hands, the distance, we're mentioning it all the time. And in Western society, we can, in, a, in the most part, do that. You're really concerned about the, the world that you worked in, which is quite different to the developed nations. Yeah, my work, sir, thanks. I spent 10 years working among the Tiboli people in the southern part of the Philippines, the island of Mindanao. Uh, I mean, in a house of two, uh, two bedrooms, there could be 15 people. You know, how do you... How do you uh, uh, a, a distance of two meters between people. By the way, in many of the situations, I was one of the only people who had running water. 
So the reality is, if this disease gets in to India, to Southeast Asia, to, to, to Africa and Latin America, it will get much, much worse in the future because it's so communicable. That's the reality, the awful reality of COVID-19. It's not so much that it kills so many people, but it's very communicable. So, it, so we, we're not, we in Ireland may feel we're moving out and maybe after, after, after uh, May 5, we can begin to, to, to take over some of these things like maybe get out. But the reality, it could get much, much worse than the rest of the world. And we're all, one of the things that COVID is telling us is that there are no boundaries in the future uh, and that we are a one-world population and we have to be careful for them because, again, in that, in that paper I gave the idea that we, we, one, of, one of the most extraordinary things, too, which has not been acknowledged is COVID-19 is the death knell of neoliberalism, of capital, a kind of capitalism that happened after 1973. And the fundamental thing was states were supposed to be small. You give out to the corporation to do every other thing. What has happened in the last three weeks, it has been the death of neoliberalism. The Chicago school <laughs> must be annoyed as all hell. But now they're saying, yes, we need big states. And that's there's over a million people in Ireland now being supported in, 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 uh, by the state at this moment. So, and there's very little comment on that. I mean, if, if, the, if the Chancellor of the Exchequer six months ago had introduced the kinds of bills he has in putting out $65 trillion, they'd have shot him, even if he was a Labour Party person. And nobody is now saying, oh, this is crazy. But this is what we have done. So... That would be a major change. But for me, the major change, and there's a very good article out by uh, Antonio Guterres, who is the Secretary General of the United Nations. And he said, as we're coming back, we better spend money on the clean, green transition. Let's not be saying we can go back to the old things and get everything ends up uh, as it was in the past. I think, and he's, he gives six, uh, six suggestions there, and all of them are about industries that are sustainable into the future. And that's the kind of thing we need to be careful of here in Ireland, that we just don't go back to, oh, it's all right now, and it'll, we'll get over this into the future. But, Sean, you're saying this is a watershed moment for mankind. And uh, the UN man writing there about it, your brilliant paper, which we have here, and I, I have in my possession here. Do you honestly think that the end of neoliberalism, as you said, it will be the definitive end and there will be a more state-dominated future in terms of running the country in this country, Ireland, which is, you rightly say, at the moment. Oh, will we forget, Sean, like the Spanish flu when millions died the world over and what followed was the Roaring Twenties when yeah. the survivors forgot all about it? Yeah, and that could happen, yes. Yeah, I mean, for example, I'm writing a book at the moment about the new technologies like uh, Facebook and all, all the rest, uh, uh, last week, the, the Australians began to say that they're going to have to get money from those for taking media content that they don't actually work on. Because what's happening is uh, newspapers are closing down, radio stations are closing down. So, uh, and the teacher said, he said, we might have to think, we call them great companies. These companies pay very little taxes in our, in, 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 in our economy or any other economy as well. So, yes, we need to make sure that they don't win out into the future, that we get back to the ordinary people, that, that a human and an earth-centered focus is what we push into the future, not making sure that Amazon numbers go up by 50%.
Mm, yeah, the the race to uh, for profit has been relentless and growth, and that certainly. Yeah, has but we we have we have, we have support. Like we we'll be, we'll be looking here in the next few months to see what Helen Dixon is doing by way of uh, of challenging these companies and also giving them huge huge fines and re- regulating them. And that is the regulator you're talking about there, and you refer to the uh, big companies who have many of their their bases and do their transactions here in Ireland. Just before we finish up today, just to summarise again in an Irish context, um, what is to be done here? What would you call on government beyond this and looking into the future to do a couple of steps they can take that would make a real difference, Sean? Well, basically, I'm just saying... Like, like we move, like taxpayers' money, resources, and this must be given to jobs that are green, clean, and uh, uh, sustainable and inclusive growth. So that's that's the, the the direction we need to go. Not going back. Like for example, the airline industry would be looking for for a bailout. Do we do that? Uh, for for example, the oil industry would be looking for a, for a bailout. Do we go back there? Because if we go there, we can't go in the other direction. And this is an opportunity for us to actually go in the other direction, but to have clear guidelines about how we're going to have to do it. And I would recommend to everyone uh, that paper by Antonio Guterres, six points about, and it it is about opting for the future, not opting for the past. But one thing on the airline industry, and I suppose I'm being selfish here thinking of it uh, myself, will, will it mean that really travel around the world will end or be restricted or should it be limited? What are you saying there? Because you wouldn't have been able to go on mission abroad and bring the stories back from other parts of the world if you couldn't travel. Yeah, it, it, will, it will be limited into the future. Yes, it will. Yeah. And, for example, a few of the things that, that have come out, for working at home, for example, will that become mm. normative in the future? If you were, say, five days a week, would you be going in every, every day? You're looking for, working from the home at the moment, aren't you? Yes. Yes, so, I am, John. So, so, I mean, these are issues. So, and people have, have, people have been in Zoom, like myself, with, with friends of mine and all of that. So technologies can help us in that way. But I think the, the sort of understanding that we can jump on a plane and head off at, 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 uh, without very serious reasons for doing it will probably not, not happen if, on, unless... Planes are not involved with with, with, with greenhouse gas emissions, you know, So because that, mm, that's yeah. what we're talking about, you know. Thought-provoking indeed, Father Sean. That's it for the moment. We'll have more interesting conversations with great guests soon for you on our next podcast. In the meantime, do join us each afternoon for Late Lunch Live from 1.30 on your station, LMFM. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 